put my uh, testimony in context, you need to understand a bit about where I come from. My parents, my family, and how they affected and influenced me. I was born in Sarnia, Ontario in June of 1965. My parents, Jim and Shirley Clark, raised my older brother Jim and myself to be honest and hardworking. Those lessons took with my brother, a little bit less so with me. When I preached on studying the Bible a little while ago, I talked about context. Context is vital in understanding anything, including my life and relationship with God. So in context, my parents were complex people who passed some of their complexity onto me. My father was raised in England in a household that viewed religion with suspicion and disdain. My grandfather was Anglican. My grandmother was Roman Catholic. When my father and his brother and sisters were born, each parent would sneak the child out to get them baptized by the appropriate church. But then it was kind of complex for them to acknowledge to each other that this had happened, so they just didn't go to any church. My grandfather was also a police officer, and he came home one day and found the Catholic priest chewing out my grandmother because the kids hadn't been to catechism class. This would have been... Uh, possibly as late as 1930. And so police-clergy relations were a little bit different then, and my grandfather picked up the Roman Catholic priest, took him out into the front dooryard, and threw him into the street, and told him that if he came back, he'd get the business end of my grandfather's nightstick. Thus, the disdain and suspicion. My mother had been raised in Canada, an Anglican, with a kind of background respect for God and church. She and her family were kind of what I think of as, in many ways, the normal Canadian of that time, where it was just there. It was just a part of your life. You went to church on Sunday. You didn't you didn't do things that would upset the church, but it wasn't really a primary upfront part. My father had been divorced in England, and he remarried my mother, a widow, here in Canada. So consequently, when my brother and I were born, my parents quite literally were told to send us along to Sunday school by ourselves, but they should stay away as they were considered to be living in sin. We did not grow up in the church. My mother and father were particularly intelligent people. Uh, my mother was in charge of the accounting and secretarial pool at Imperial Oil. 
Dad was a chief of police. Once again, this took with my older brother, a bit less so with me. I thought that our life growing up was fairly normal. We had family and friends. We went to school, went camping in the summer. We had various pets, bikes, kites, and the like. I desperately wanted a chemistry set as a child, and as I mentioned, my parents were particularly intelligent, and I never got one. <laughs> but we had the outdoors, and that was kind of like a chemistry set. We played until the streetlights came on or Dad shouted for us. We did some chores around the house, homework, feed the dog, off to bed after supper, repeat. Apparently, I was baptized as an infant at the Anglican Church, my first and last time in a church until I was a Cub Scout. One of the badges that you could get as a Cub Scout was something to do with attending a church. So one night for the evening service, the entire uh, Cub troop went to the local Anglican church and we sat there and I think that our leaders went nuts trying to keep us still during the trip. And then we were out and we all got our badges and they never said they'd bring us back again. <laughs> I didn't actually go again until a little while later when my cousin got married and I was invited with the rest of the family to attend. It wasn't on my radar at all, church. Um, Sunday morning was just a boring version of Saturday. You know, Saturday we had awesome cartoons and, and the whole weekend was ahead of you. Uh, Sunday were the kind of weird cartoons. Does anybody remember Davy and Goliath? Yeah, so he, he, Sundays just were not as much fun as a little weird claymation thing, and sometimes I'd click through, well, you didn't click through, you clicked through on the TV, and you'd see various church shows that were on, and then you'd turn it, desperately hoping that Archie's or Scooby-Doo or something like that would be on. So Sunday, and, and Sunday was kind of a family day, because my grandfather would come over in the afternoon, and we would have Sunday supper, which was usually a roast of some type. Uh, and then Jimmy and I would watch The Wonderful World of Walt Disney, and my mom and dad and my gramp would play uh, bridge. And then we would go to bed and we would have school the next day. That was what a Sunday was for us. It was a, a non-issue. Church was something that a few of my friends did. I... I can remember being annoyed because I'd get permission to go outside and play, but my friends were gone because they were gone to church. At school, up to about grade two, we had a daily Bible reading and the Lord's Prayer along with the singing of O Canada. I'm honestly not certain how long that went on. Like, I'm, I'm guessing to grade two, but I really don't remember because it was just part of that thing that you did when you went to the start of school. Again, it was, it was just there. My clearest memory of that would be in Mrs. Hines' class, which I think was grade two. And she would have us take turns going up 
and reading that portion from the Bible. So everybody in the class read from the Bible probably at least once. Some people maybe never twice. But it was just, again, a part of the background. It was just there. So jump forward now to 1978. And we've moved to St. Stephen, New Brunswick from Point Edward, Ontario. I had very few friends there for various reasons. But one friend, a fellow by the name of Neil McDonald, he was a 16-year-old, I was 13 roughly about this point, uh, who lived up the road from me and just happened to be a Jehovah's Witness. We would skateboard. He taught me how to skateboard. He also taught me why gravel was a bad thing. Uh, or we'd run around outside. Or our favorite thing to do uh, would be to sit up in his room, listen to the band Wild Cherry, play chess, and argue about religion. I was not quite 13 at this point, and I knew nothing about religion, but I loved to argue, and I was pretty sure I was probably right about most things. This went on for quite a while, and eventually, Neil invited me to come to church with them. I thought this was an interesting idea, uh, and I went to ask my mom if it was okay. I thought it was a no-brainer. I figured she'd be like, oh yeah, sure, go ahead. To my surprise, my mother became quite agitated and said, no, I was not allowed to go to the Kingdom Hall with them. And now she wasn't sure she wanted me hanging out with Neil and his family anymore. This was my first real indication that there might be something more serious about religion with my parents particularly my mother, uh, that I had been unaware of up to this point. So, jump forward again five years, and now we're living in PEI. We moved there in October of 79, and in 1982, Dad was teaching now at the Atlantic Police Academy. My mother was ill with emphysema, uh, I was attending Charlottetown Rural High School, and I actually had some friends. There was a, a group of us that got around, and, and we played Dungeons and & Dragons, and we watched movies together, and we would go riding on our bikes. And then I got my moped, and I was the absolute ruler of all coolness because I had a moped. Uh, it was a moped designed to move about 30 pounds less than me, so it was not a fast moped. One of my friends called me one day, it was a Wednesday, and he asked what I was doing. He attended Zion Presbyterian in Charlottetown and went to a youth group. I had never heard of a youth group. No idea what that was. but. Kenny said that they were going to have a corn boil and a softball game. And I like corn. I can live without softball, but there was going to be corn. So I said, sure. I'd done my homework. My parents were fine with it. I had nothing else to do. Off I went. 
In the interest of openness and honesty, I have to admit the reason that I kept going was the number of attractive young ladies who also attended the youth group. That was my motivator. And to be honest, I think that was a motivator of the majority of the young men who were also regularly attending the youth yeah, group. Jeff, I was going to say, you wouldn't be the first uh, teenager that did that for that no, reason. No, so. <laughs> no. Uh, David Hayward was the uh, associate minister who was running the youth group, and David would be talking, and the girls would be listening, and the guys were sort of listening. And while I was busily trying to ask out some of the girls, I found myself listening to some of what David had to say about God, Jesus, and the Bible. And after a little while, very much to my surprise, I was listening to more of what David was saying and paying less attention to the girls. And I, I need to put this in context again. That for me, this is a, a shocking thing, A, for me to have realized, and B, for it to have happened. Because at the age of 17, my focus was on getting girls to go out with me. And, and that was it. Remember those kids who were like all about hockey? And like everywhere they went, they had a hockey jersey on. They were like a practice at this. That's what I was like about trying to get a girl to go out with me. And so consequently, for me to be sitting there, and I remember this one night, is that one of the particularly attractive young ladies said something to me, and I shushed her. And Kenny said to me later, are you okay? <laughs> But David was talking about things that had hooked my attention. Up to this point in my life, the existence of the Bible and Christianity were simply background items that I paid no real attention to. But David was saying things that jumped at me. Sin, death, punishment, eternal torment, hell. Sounds very negative, doesn't it? But these were things that really had never been discussed with me. And one of the things, this is kind of a side issue, but one of the things that we need to understand about Christianity is why it was even necessary in the first place. And there is a reason. If there's no need for salvation, if you're not being saved from something, then why bother? So to understand for the first time that there is a risk and that there's something that you need to be saved from was a pretty big deal for me. So Jeff, at this point, everything that you were hearing here was all new to you. Like you had never heard this before. And so this is like, you're kind of a bit of a sponge where it's like, wow, what is this stuff all about? So, Well, I was either going to be a sponge or I was going to be a raincoat, <laughs> right? 
a lot of times, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a bit, a lot of times it just literally seems to run off people when you're talking about the gospel. And you can tell pretty quickly when that's the case. These were things I had heard vaguely about and pushed aside, but the idea that Jesus had died to pay for my sin, that God had planned this out from the beginning because he knew that I was going to sin, that I could be forgiven not just for what I had already done, but also for what I had not yet done, was simply unbelievable. I was not a good student, mostly due to my own laziness. When you look at my report cards, uh, the comment was always, and some of us were talking about this a little while ago online, uh, the comment was always on mine, Jeff is very social, but he needs to pay more attention to the work and less time speaking to his classmates. When I really liked a course, when I was captured by a course, I could get quite decent marks in it. I could get 80s and 90s. Most of my marks were whatever was needed just to pass. So if you needed a 60 to pass or a 50 to pass, I'd get 51 or 61. If you needed a 65 to pass, I'd get 66, unless I failed. But I knew how to do research. And I thought to myself, I needed to see if what David was telling me was true. I needed to look into it, so I did. I started with the question, is the Bible true? If the Bible has basis in fact, then I can trust what it says. The research that I did, it, it, it sounds very grandiose, research. Every time I say that, I picture myself in like a, an advanced lab with a microscope and a magnifying glass, and I've got like 37 copies of the Bible all in different languages. Yeah, no, 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 it was me in a library. But the research that I did led me to seeing that the Bible is reliable. The places it talked about were real. The people that were in the pages were real. The, there's a real struggle between Christianity and archaeology. To the point that, very often, if you are known to be a Christian, you cannot publish findings as an archaeologist because they will write off whatever you found as having bias. Saying that whatever it is that you found, you're going to try and use that to justify saying that the Bible is real. But the actual fact of the matter is this. Everything that gets dug up in the Middle East that has any connection to the Bible simply establishes that what was said in the Bible is accurate. And that's a pretty big deal. Because think about how many people don't like Christianity. 
So if you dug up something that said, ah, this is wrong in the Bible, that would be plastered everywhere. They would go nuts with that. But they don't. Because everything that they dig up that has any connection, whether it's about the people, you know, 30, maybe 30 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, they were, they were actually doing street work in Jerusalem. And they dug down and what most people don't realize is that Jerusalem is built on top of Jerusalem. So there's actually a couple of cities there. There's actually three cities there. But the two that we're interested in, the modern Jerusalem, is built on top of what we would call the historic Jerusalem. So they dug down to repair the streets and some pipes underneath, and they found graves. Now, a grave in Jerusalem, in, in Israel, is a little bit different. Okay, so you know, in the account of Jesus dying, they took his body and they put it in Joseph's grave. Remember that? And they rolled a big stone in front of it. So, again, this has to do with context. The body didn't stay in that grave permanently. The body stayed in that grave until the flesh was gone. Then they would gather the bones and they would put it in what's called an ossuary. And an ossuary, it's a box with a name on it. So here lies Bob. That's what's on the box. A little bit more identifier. They put the bones in there, and then that box with the bones was laid to rest in a permanent grave. And that's what they found. And they found a list, which I did not bring with me, but I can find if you want. They found a list of people from the New Testament who they found both of the high priests at the time of Jesus because there were two high priests, one who was established by the government and one who was established by the Jewish church. And they found both of them. These names are real. These people are real. These things are real. And continuously, it proves that the Bible is accurate. There was also mention of the people and the places and the activities in other historical documents. Archaeology supported what the Bible said. Scientific method demonstrated that the Bible was essentially reliable in what it said. What is scientific method? There's your question right now. Who can tell me, that isn't Richard, what is scientific method? What is the scientific method? Is your chance to get some brownie points as a test. Okay, so as a Christian, I'm gonna tell you that the scientific method is one of the most important things as a Christian that you will ever use. Richard, tell them the scientific well, method. Well, so basically the scientific method is you, uh, you're trying to test something, so you actually propose a hypothesis, that, and, and then you have, to, you have to find proof that either usually you disprove or prove that hypothesis. Usually you try to disprove it is the idea, because basically you cannot necessarily always prove stuff. But the idea behind it is there's a clear statement of what you're trying to, of your hypothesis, and there's clear evidence that supports your conclusion. And... It has to be repeatable. Exactly. Right. So 
if we were proving something about hydrogen, and so Hazel and Debbie set up a lab, and they do an experiment to prove that hydrogen blows up when you touch it with a map, match, a map will not explode hydrogen generally. And then Richard and I, we hear that they've done this, so we say, well, let's try that. So we set it up the same way they did, and we put in the match, and boom, the hydrogen goes, and we say, hey, there might be something to this. Using the scientific method, the physical tests on the remnants of the Bible are consistent and repeatable, that they prove out to being in the age that they're supposed to be. The number of portions of the Bible that have been found, which repeat each other, but come from different areas, has established repeatable reliability on what was written. The existence of the very people that are talked about are not just mentioned in the Bible, but are also mentioned by people like Pliny the Elder and a ton of other writers in the Roman Empire and in the Greek nations who wrote about the Christians, in some cases specifically by name, establishing that they were not simply made up. And then there are the elements of logic that go into this. And I know we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. How many of the politicians that are running for election right now start out by saying, you shouldn't vote for me, I wasn't a very good person, and this is the bad stuff that I did? Any of them? Okay, so the Apostle Peter, right from the beginning, never wants to say anything about himself because he knows that he betrayed Jesus. He denied Jesus while Jesus was on trial, and he reminds people of that. Paul reminds people of how, as Saul, he would go around house to house, arresting the Christians, dragging them out, opposing the Lord at every opportunity. In fact, when you read the Gospels, the apostles who wrote them, and Luke, who was more of an investigative journalist, all make the apostles look bad because they didn't figure out who Jesus was until later than they should have, they didn't always do what he said. They tried to do things themselves. They wanted to hurt people. This is realism. This is not the stuff that people who are making up an idea include. It was supported by external writers and it had measurable continuity. This was disturbing to me, a 17-year-old, because this was big. Because if the Bible could be trusted, then I needed to listen to it about Jesus. So one night at youth group with a bunch of other kids, I prayed a prayer and I started following Jesus. This really freaked out a lot of my friends. We had lots of discussions about it and I learned something pretty important during that part of my life. Some people do not want to believe that Jesus is real. It doesn't matter what evidence you lay out for them. 
They simply don't want to believe, so they won't. Which, by the way, has led to one of my questions that I use in life when I start into a conversation with somebody, and the question is this. If I can actually demonstrate through evidence that what I'm saying is true, are you willing to consider changing what you believe? And if they say no, which actually people are usually pretty honest and will say no on a regular basis, then I just don't bother having the conversation. Because it's less stress for them, it's less stress for me, and maybe the next person who talks to this person will get a better response. Maybe God has not finished preparing the heart of this person. Or maybe this person simply does not want to listen. So, this leads to the next stage, where roughly a year later, so we've been going to the youth group. There's several different youth groups at the church. And roughly a year later, my friend who had originally invited me and myself with a couple of other kids our age, we were asked to run the younger youth group. We agreed and started in on it. We were great with games, uh, fun activities, but none of us really knew enough to actually teach anything. Um, I had graduated from high school and, and was just hopping from one job to another at this point. As I said, I was, a, I was a lazy student, and so when I applied to the University of Prince Edward Island, they looked at my marks and they said, we'll let you take a couple of courses and see how you do. And I was personally insulted by that because I'm usually right about everything. So I didn't go. I just started finding jobs. Uh, Mom had passed away in August of 1983. I was working at Radio Shack at this point, as a matter of fact. And now it was just Dad and I at home. And my older brother was away at university. I took the idea of leading the youth group seriously and was trying to figure out how to teach stuff to the younger teens. A friend of mine, Lynn, uh, she was Lynn Hickox at the time, she's Lynn Rayner now. Uh, she and her husband, Andy, uh, currently he's a lobster fisherman in PEI, but they've ministered in a number of churches around the Maritimes and uh, they were missionaries to Africa for uh, 20 years at least. Uh, and the last time they were there, um, they had a setup in Mali, and the village people essentially locked them in their hut to protect them because the local army was looking for them to grab them. The other missionaries who were grabbed, this was five years ago, six years ago, somewhere around there. The other missionaries in the area who were grabbed have either been killed or are still being held hostage. And the people there essentially snuck the Rainers out and said, no, you need, to, you need to go home. God has other things for you. So this is the Lynn who, who said to me, um, I should think about going to Maritime Christian College for a bit. 
that's a Christian college in Charlottetown that's associated with the Churches of Christ Christian Churches. Uh, she said, then I could learn something to teach the kids. I had never heard of MCC. I, I, at this point, I'd been living for years in, in Charlottetown, and I didn't even know it existed. It was on a corner near a bar I went to. That was about it. Uh, but I thought I might look into it, because I thought, okay, I'm not really doing anything right now except jumping from job to job. So I went in and met with the college. Uh, it was off to a great start. I thought the president of the college was a janitor. Uh, I kept asking him where the president was and he kept just looking at me. <laughs> so I signed up to start in September. And I was completely out of my element. The other students had all been attending church for most of their lives. They'd gone to Sunday school and youth groups and youth conferences. Uh, they knew a lot of the fundamentals, whereas I couldn't even find the books in the Bible. You know, everybody else, our professor would say, all right, turn to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 23, and everybody else would just flip to it. And I had to go to the front of the Bible and find the table of contents and find what page it was actually on. And then I would flip over to that page and I would, oh, okay, there's the start of the book. And how are the chapters working? And how are the verses? I didn't know any of it. And they would sit there. Honestly, this was one of the nicest moments that I didn't recognize for a few years. They sat and waited for me to find it before they started. Well, everybody else would just turn to the appropriate section there I was. I was woefully unprepared for the work that was expected of me. And with a, within a couple of days, I felt I had made a terrible mistake. Again, for the sake of transparency and honesty, I have to say that I initially stuck with it, not because I had a sense of mission or because I felt called by God but because my dad had paid cash up front for my tuition and books, I had already had my father put me through a couple of courses, uh, one as a radio broadcaster and one working in security, and then I had done nothing with the courses. So I was not going to do that again. He had been very clear that he would not appreciate it. So I chipped away at it, and with the help of some friends who were also attending there as well, like Lynn and Peter McIntyre and eventually Andy Rayner, who I got to know, and it was in those early days, with other people's help, that I was exposed to some core teachings that I had never heard before and which would change the course of my life entirely. Our main professor, Mr. K.T. Norris, taught the courses Luke and Acts of the Apostles that first semester. Between these, he took us through the scriptures to the two central ideas of salvation and its process and evangelism. In looking at salvation, for the process itself, we went to Acts chapter 2. 
which contained the initial explanation of the gospel on the day of Pentecost and the methodology for entering into the covenant with God through Jesus. For the basis of evangelism, we went to Matthew 28, 16 to 20, also called the Great Commission, wherein we received the commission from Jesus to take the gospel to the world. I remember Mr. Norris saying that there was no greater calling than that of carrying the gospel to the world. So, after learning about this, after studying this, after reading it, on a Sunday night service at Central Christian Church in Charlottetown, the minister there, Alan Smith, baptized me into Jesus. I received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and I became a Christian, a Christ follower. And I dedicated myself to sharing the gospel with anyone who wants to hear it. Because I am absolutely convinced that there is no more important thing to do on this earth than share the gospel. I have been a soldier and a firefighter. I have learned first aid and mental health training. I have fed and clothed the hungry and the cold. All these are important, but pale beside the need for people to hear that they can be saved from an eternity of hell. You know, on Facebook and on inter the internet in general, you see that picture of a guy sitting in a park with a coffee and there's a table in front of him and, and they'll post something on the front of that. You know, and basically Buddy's waiting for people to dare to argue with him. And this is one of the only things that I would do that with is I dare anybody to challenge me on the statement that sharing the gospel with people is the single most important thing that we will ever do. It's the most important job that a person could ever have. And I'll give you the really quick answer for that. If you're a doctor, how long can you help somebody? Till they die. If you're a police officer, how long can you help somebody? Till they die. If you are a prime minister or a president or royalty, how long can you help somebody? Until they die. And if you're Jesus, you can help them for eternity. If you accept that what the Bible says is true, without Jesus, there is an eternity of separation from God, of torment, that every single person on earth is facing. But the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sin and for your sin, and that by accepting that sacrifice, 
and being baptized into Jesus, we are separated from our sin. We do not face the punishment anymore. And in fact, we are adopted into God's family to spend eternity with him. And I submit to you that there is nothing on this planet more important than that. Now, all the other jobs can help towards that. We need to feed people and we need to clothe people because cold, hungry people don't listen well, do they? We need to have police and firefighters and soldiers and prime ministers and presidents and royalty. We need them because we live on this earth for an indeterminate period of time and they all help to make things better here. But every single one of us has the opportunity to change someone's life forever. Even all the other tasks that the church may perform are second to this commission. So I started at Maritime Christian College in September of 1985, and I completed my training there in 1995. <laughs> Remember, I clearly admitted I am not a good student. I made evangelism my focus. Eventually entered the ministry. This was not an easy path for me for a number of reasons. First, my family did not understand what I was doing. Um, I had been a minister for about 10 years and I was at my dad's house and he looked at me one day and he said, well, I guess this Christianity thing must be going to stick with you. My, my aunt, when in my first year of Bible college, my dad and I went to visit family in Ontario and my aunt Marion, when she found out that I was going to Bible college to be a minister, said, oh, that someone from this family should go into that. I felt like I was going to be like a sheep stealer or something, but my, my cousin who could do this offered to buy me a bar if I would leave Bible college. I thought about that sometimes. That's, that's one of those moments where you can absolutely see how everything would have been different in some way. If I'd said to him, sure, he would have bought me a bar. My family did not understand. It was also difficult because despite a clear understanding of what God was asking of me, I often tried to do things my way rather than God's. I almost always felt that I was right, that I knew what had to happen in every situation. But God can be funny sometimes. 
He takes a know-it-all and uses him to help grow the kingdom. He takes a guy that he already knows is going to fail and not only forgives him, but again, uses him to help grow the kingdom, uses him to help bring the gospel to people so that they too can make a choice. It can be hard to look at the spots in my life where I made some pretty obvious errors or sins. But it is even more amazing that God was willing to work with me anyway. Don't get me wrong. This is a hard calling no matter what. Remember the lesson that I learned. Some people don't want to believe. Will actively resist believing and will oppose you trying to share the gospel. In fact, what have we reached now in Canada? We've reached the point now where the gospel can be legally termed hate speech. The message that God loves you and wants to save you from a punishment that we've all earned is hate speech. So it is a hard path. But another lesson I had to learn and be reminded of pretty often, to be honest, is that God doesn't call us to save the world. Jesus already did that. God asks us to tell people about it and to make disciples of the ones who will follow. And so, I have been involved in some amazing moments led by the Holy Spirit. I have been involved in supernatural events, held people's hands as they prayed, as they died, and as they lived again. So, here I sit in front of you. I want to remind you that when you make mistakes or sin or choose the wrong path, don't think that you should just throw up your hands and quit. Remember that God already knew these things were going to happen and knew what choices you were going to make, and he still chose you. Step out for him. That's what I did. And honestly, <laughs> for all the hardship, I would never change that. God has given me a mission in life that I never had an amazing wife, beautiful children and grandchildren, the chance to have Jada in my life, how could I ever walk away from that? 